The following is a sermon from the Vicar at Sure Foundation, a church located in Woodside, Queens, New York, the world's most diverse community. For more information and for more audio content, go to sure-foundation.org. Our sermon series for these next couple of Sundays here at Sure Foundation are First Peter, Living Hope. And that's because that's what we have in Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And through this resurrection, we have salvation. We have eternal life. And we'll be focusing on this living hope in different aspects throughout our next couple of Sundays here at Shure Foundation. And today, I want to focus on verses 17 to 21 of the first chapter. That are, like I said at the beginning of the service, some of the greatest verses of redemption that we see in Scripture what I want to show you today in three different ways is how that makes us wonderfully different as we go throughout our lives here in the world. So if you're here in the church, I want you to open up to page 10, please, for these verses. If you're at home, open up to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 21. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. My friends in Christ, have you ever felt like you've been in a place where you just don't belong? Maybe you've tried going into a restaurant, maybe downtown or something like that, and then you walk into the restaurant, but you see that everyone else has a shirt and tie on, nice pants, nice shoes, and you just came in with shorts and a t-shirt, and you think, I don't know if I should sit down in this restaurant. I don't think I'm up to the dress code. Maybe you've tried going to a sporting event, expecting to cheer for one team, but then you get into the stadium and you find out that you've been cheering for the wrong team this entire time, and everyone's looking at you. Maybe you don't belong in that stadium. Maybe you were going through high school or something, and you were trying to find your way through your new school. You walk into you sit down at a desk, you see what the teacher has on the whiteboard, and you realize, I don't belong here at all. I don't understand a single thing that she's talking about on the board. I must be in the wrong place. Have you ever felt that way here on earth? Where you feel like for some reason you just can't relate with the world around you, and for some reason you don't want to? What if I were to tell you that you were right? that you are different, that you're so wonderfully different that it sticks out on you like a sore thumb. Now, no one likes to be called that. I'm well aware no one likes to be called different in the world. But what I want to show you and what these verses are going to tell us today is that there's three ways that you're different here in the world. And I want to be able to show you a couple ways how. And Peter knew that too. Peter knew his people. He knew the people that he was writing to. Peter is writing to believers who are scattered throughout Asia Minor. And they were, they were Christians, and they believed in the gospel, but they were also coming from a background that was completely different. 
For these Christians, they were coming from a way that Peter described it as from empty and fruitless ways of living. These were ways that were full of old traditions that had been passed on for years and years and years. These were from different philosophies from the Greeks and the Romans, and they were old ways of life that they had, had been passed down through their families that just kept weighing them down, and they never seemed like they could finally get out of it. But now they had. These were Christians who had embraced the truth of the gospel. They had heard the gospel. They believed that Jesus Christ is risen, that he is risen indeed. And because they believed this message that Jesus is the Christ and that they have salvation from their sins, now they were beginning to experience persecution for no other reason other than expressing that they believed in Christ and living a morality that was completely different than the rest of the world around them. And now these Christians were faced with a choice. They were tempted to give up the new way of living that they had found in Christ and living in holiness and a set-apartness that they had been given and chosen for by Christ, or they could revert back to the ways of their old life like the rest of the world was doing. Peter knows that for his people, this is a make-or-break moment for them. They can embrace the resurrection promises and live in this joy of the gospel, or they can push it all away and go back to the ways that they had known for so many years before. So what Peter does is he brings them right back to these resurrection and gospel promises that they had heard that they had been freed from this lifestyle of sin. And they didn't even have to pay for it. They didn't have to give gold or silver, but rather it was bought for them by the precious blood of Christ. They didn't do anything to earn it. They were redeemed. They were, their sins were paid for on the cross for their redemption. And their status and their value had been changed forever. And what Peter shows them once again is that their God is different, who paid for their sins with a self-sacrificing love. And that these Christians are no longer subject to being under the idea of they have to work out their own salvation or justification or forgiveness of sins. They have it. And what Peter writes for these Christians is timeless. So what's true for these Christians 2,000 years ago, the same for you today that you don't have to feel like you're in the rat race or the hustle to try and earn your way towards heaven. Christ has paid for it for you. Your ransom has been paid. Your salvation has been secured. Right off the bat, you're different. So wonderfully different. Which means that you live up to a different standard. You know what this God has done and who this Jesus is, and you know that it's true because you know who your God is. And you know that God is a judge who judges impartially and can't be fooled. So Peter says you live in reverent fear. What does it mean to fear God? What I could do is I could put some of my catechism students to the test or some of the people who have gone through catechism here to know how we express fear, fear, love, and trust in God in the commandments. But what does it mean to fear God? Am I afraid of him? Am I afraid of his power? Am I terrified of what he could do to me? How can someone fear God? Why would someone even want to fear God? 
as a Christian, when we say fear God, we have two meanings that we're going at. And one side of it is terror. One side of it is fear of God. And this is what we actually desperately need. We need this terror and wrath of God to take on the old sinner in us who wants to give up this lifestyle, wants to give up this gift of faith that we have received in Christ. We need this terror of wrath because when we say that we want God to fulfill all of his promises that he promises in Scripture, that includes the ones where he says he will give the blessings to the Christians. That means where he says he will look after us and guide us, but that also means that he will hold up his promise to cast judgment and punishment towards those who don't believe. We need this kind of fear in our life and fear of God because the Christian who has stopped repenting and whose conscience is now consigned to just ignoring what it's saying about sin, that person is no longer a Christian. Someone who decides that they want to turn a blind eye towards sin and embrace the sinful desires that they have in the flesh, that person is not fearing God, does not have the fear and terror of the wrath of God that he has shown that he can give in the Old Testament and the New. That's one side of the fear of God. But the fear of God also turns and talks to the new man who knows that this fear is not the terror of judgment, but it's heartfelt respect which the God of might and the God of grace deserves. Because we know that this is the God who is able to create the world just from his fingertips, who is able to calm the seas amidst a hurricane and whose intellect and might and understanding surpass all of our understanding and the God who saw and chose us. This God deserves the respect that his reputation and his word deserves. So in our hearts and in our minds, we give God this fear. It isn't so terrifying and it isn't so scary, but it's heartfelt respect towards the God who saw us and chose us. And it's the basis for our godly living, living that is completely different from the world around us. So wonderfully different. And that godly living that you have been called for is to be holy, to be set apart, to live a new commandment of love towards your neighbors, believers and unbelievers alike. And a love that is founded upon the blood of the unblemished Lamb of God. So now it's a make or break moment for us, isn't it? We can either embrace the resurrection promises of the, and the gospel joy that we celebrated last Sunday and continue to carry it out throughout the rest of this month and throughout the rest of our lives, or we can pack it up and push it away, put it in a box, and ignore it for the rest of our lives. Peter's writing to Christians and knows and isn't really giving them the impression that their life is going to be easy once they take on this holiness and this godly style of living. He isn't pretending like it's going to be easy for them. And what Peter's been showing these Christians and he's been showing us today is that our God is different and that the message that we preach to the world is different. And it's a lifelong struggle for us to learn that the things here on earth that we can see, these are the things that are perishable. 
but the things that we cannot see are the ones that have true and lasting value. That makes it sound like it's going to be a journey, and it will be. Full of different trials and full of different burdens, full of different detours, and full of things and potholes that get in our way. Temptations to lapse just once or twice just to give in to the sin that just keeps popping up in my mind. Temptations to take some of the law of what God has given us, but then take away and push away some of the ones, some of the God's laws that just don't seem to fit with society, don't seem to mesh with the people around us. Temptations to listen to the devil's whispers of anxiety, despair, desperation. Temptations to give it all up. Revert back to the old way of lifestyle that we knew we used to live. Temptations to give it all up. But I know who I'm talking to. I'm talking to Christians. And you might as well own the fact that you're different and own it proudly because it's marked you forever, child of God. This is your new normal. You are wonderfully different, noticeably different, with one foot living here in the world and working in the world, but then one foot also with an eye towards heaven, your heavenly home. And being and embracing the set-apartness and holiness that God desires, it will feel lonely. It's a lonely and often unworn path. On the Appalachian Trail, which is a trail that stretches from Springer Mountain, Georgia, all the way up to uh, Mount Katadin in in Maine, it's about 2,200 miles. Thousands of hikers each year set foot in Georgia and hope that they're going to be some of the few people that will take the journey to be able to complete the Appalachian Trail. Each year, thousands of excited, adventurous Go to the start of this trail. They bring along a field guide. They bring along a map. They bring along food and water. And they're excited just to get started on it. And most of them just want to be able to complete it either alone with a friend or they just want to be able to complete it just in one piece without any limbs missing from it. Now, no hiker is crazy enough to go on this trail without a map or a field guide. Because in these field guides and in these maps are different journals, different descriptions, different diaries, different marks and signs, and different refuges that they can go to stop along the way. But each year, thousands of hikers have their worst possible fear imagined. They lose the trail that they so eagerly marked off and set on their map. And each year, those thousands of hikers who lose the trail, they have a make-or-break moment to decide if they want to keep going on the map that they've been giving and find these refuges, listen to the journals and the different spots that they had heard in their preparation and in their maps. They can decide to keep going or they can decide to leave the trail. If you look off into the brush of wherever you're living, what you can see is you can see the steps of faithful and exhausted Christians who have walked the way that you're walking in the world today. And as you walk on this unworn trail, you can, and once you reach the end of this unworn trail, you can hear the angels in heaven cheering you on, excited to hear and share stories with you about the ways that the devil tried to tempt them 
and the way that God was so good and gracious to them along the way. And as you traverse through this lonely and unworn trail, you can open up your field guide in the Bible that has journals and letters from weary Christian travelers who are making their way on this earth all the way until their goal in heaven. You can hear about the different potholes and the temptations and trials they faced that can give you guidance for how to live your holy life here on this earth. It was a lonely path that Jesus walked up to Golgotha to pay for all of the sins of the world, to pay for all of the temptations, to revert back to the old lifestyle that these Christians were living and that we live too. He's walked this lonely and unworn path and he's been killed on this lonely and unworn path. But the make or break moments of our faith happened on Easter. And because we know that that day is true, that makes everything different for us and we can't ever be the same. When he said that it is finished, that didn't just mean his life and his ministry. It means for your sin and your brokenness. When he says it is finished, he says that your death will come, but you will go to heaven afterwards. And when that death comes and when that end comes to this life, there begins your new life. Start planning for it now. I said the silent part out loud that you are different. So wonderfully different. And if you don't think that you're going to belong or you don't think it's going to be easy, you're probably right. But the difference that marks you is the difference that makes you so, so wonderful and radiates off of you, that makes people wonder why you're living the way you do, that makes people wonder, what does this person know that I don't already know? Praise God for these wonderful opportunities to share the faith that you've been given. Amen.